Hey everyone, this is Caitlin Yeager with Missouri Humanities. Join us as we highlight the uniqueness of Missouri's small towns and showcase the bigger picture of what small town America really is by bringing you to communities across the state and listening to their stories of why they shouldn't be overlooked, overshadowed, or underappreciated. We're not a flyover state. We're the heart of America. From somewhere in the show me state, this is Small Town Showcase. I'm sure most Missourians have driven the length of Highway 70 across Missouri, or at least part of it, at some point in their lives. The highway connects St. Louis to Kansas City and continues westward through Kansas and on and on. Just about an hour east of Kansas City, at exit 66 along Highway 70, sits the little town of Sweet Springs, Missouri. This picturesque community in Saline County is more than meets the eye. From the highway, you might only see their gas stations and water tower, but venture in just a little more and what you'll find is a community dedicated to revitalization and progress. There's a lot of potential, a lot of heart, and a lot of irons in the fire to try and bring back some of the businesses and activities to this town. But in the meantime, there really is a lot here that people might overlook at first glance. They have restaurants, a bar, a historical society, a hardware store, a coffee shop, which roasts its own beans, by the way, a full service grocery store, and a destination cheese store that brings people off the highway. They even have boutiques and a fully stocked Carhartt store. These businesses meet many, if not all, the needs of a community, which is saying a lot for a town of this size, which is just over 1,400 people. It also has a really intricate and fascinating history that the town is trying to bring more attention to. I was excited to sit down with this group to get into this rich history, the community dynamic, and the impressive revitalization efforts that make Sweet Springs such an interesting study of small town Missouri. So here we are in um, Sweet Springs, Missouri. I am here with um, some really lovely people that I've gotten to know over the last couple days. Um, Tara Brewer, she is a community volunteer and she's directly involved with a lot of the town's restoration projects. Tara, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And then we have um, Sam Blaine. Sam is the de facto town historian and uh, he um, runs the Sweet Springs Historical Society and his family has really impressive and, and deep roots here in Sweet Springs. So Sam, welcome. Thank you. And then we have, um, last but certainly not least, is Franny Vaught. He is the town mayor um, and also has a lot of really great history with his family here in Sweet Springs. So, uh, Franny, thank you so much for, for talking with us. Thank you for being here. Yeah. I'd love it if you guys could paint a picture of Sweet Springs. So, um, we're right off of Highway 70, like right off of Highway 70, but it's also a town that it's kind of hidden. You know, you can get to it right from the highway, but you kind of have to get in a little bit to see the, the downtown, the main street, and a lot of the main businesses. So um, if you would kind of paint a picture, what would people see, experience, or feel as they come through town? Um, what is this environment or landscape like coming through Missouri? Um, tell us a little bit about that. What is Sweet Springs and where we're at? You're right, we're dead center between Kansas City and Columbia. A lot of people know us for our gas stations. It's a perfect place to stop. But if they would continue on down 127 and, and take a right turn, um, they would actually see our beautiful downtown and um, kind of what we have going here. We have beautiful historical buildings um, that we are trying to revive and we have housing projects going on around here as well. They have a grocery store, you know, it's, it's a big thing nowadays. And uh, just a sense of community, I think, is what you will see just driving through here. You'll see people walking their dogs or running or it's, it's, a, little it's a little picturesque, but it's not perfect. <laughs> it's a great little town to raise a family in. Franny and Sam, um I'd love it if you two could talk a bit about the history of the town. Um, so Sam, I know that you, you've spent a lot of time compiling this town's history and you're so dedicated to, 
to getting it documented and preserving, um, you know, we were at the Sweet Springs Historical Society yesterday and preserving so many pieces of history. And then Franny, your family um, and your history to what is now the town park. Um, I would love it if you guys could talk a little bit about that, whichever you'd like to go first. Well, the town started about 1834 by the building of a mill. Asa Pennington built a mill and a store, or not a store, but his business, they're blacksmithing too. And the area was surrounded by plantations. So the south side of Main Street and south was Asa Pennington's property. My uncle, James Fitzpatrick, had the north side of Main Street and 80 acres. Pennington had 40 acres, Fitzpatrick had 80, and that had joined all the other family, brothers and his family, all the way up to Blackburn. So the earliest settlers came in taking their, their land as settlement for service in the War of 1812. So they brought in the families they served with in Kentucky in the militia in the War of 1812, and they got their land rights here. So that accounts for all of the settlement north of town. And then most of those families when they got too old, the farm, they'd move into the settlement. But we were originally Clayville until 1837, and Stephen G. Wentworth and William Brown came in from New York, and Wentworth was a banker here in town, and married the original banker's daughter here, that was in 1838. It was primarily Upper South that was here originally, and then the two New Yorkers, Wentworth and Brown, come in, and this is 30 years before the war had happened. And the town grew, it was pretty slow. We started off with like 14 lots, house lots on Main Street, on the west end of Main Street. And then it just grew from there. Um, the park, that was, the spring is located in the Sweet Spring. So it started off with Clayville, changed the name to Brownsville. Then Brown disappears, Wentworth stays until 1841 and moves to Lexington and starts his bank up there and then later founds the Wentworth Military Academy. Sweet Springs has quite the interesting history and a lot has happened here. As the town's name alludes, there's a spring in town that attracted the attention of both settlers and tourists. Like many other towns in the late 19th and early 20th century, towns like Eureka Springs, Hot Springs, Excelsior Springs, they used the spring as a major tourist attraction. But through some twists and turns and some unfortunate incidents, the town went through many changes during its first hundred years that caused a bit of an identity crisis. Uh, there was a lady who was suffering from consumption. Her doctors had told her she was dying, just returned to her family land and die peacefully. But when she had her energy up, she'd ride her pony down from the plantation northwest of town along the Blackwater and Davis Creek and stop at this spring and drink the water every day. And in not very long, she showed improvement and then real, it was just normal. She was cured. And there wasn't any explanation except for the water she was drinking. So they decided to make a resort out of it. And her husband was Reverend John Laps Leantis. He was an early Presbyterian minister here in this area. And he wanted to buy the land, but his brother-in-law, Dr. Ostrander, jumped to the land office first and bought the land right up under his nose. And then Ostrander took off on the Oregon Trail in the 1840s, and, or 1830s and 40s, and Leantis wasn't able to buy it until 48. So Yantis acquired the spring and the adjoining grounds and built the first school there, a male academy. And then he started building cottages and it started a resort function for that land. And that lasted until about 1674, 75, 76. And the Marmaduke family started buying up all of that land and they built a massive hotel on the park. It was just a became like a social mecca for the society families in Kansas City and St. Louis and everywhere in between. They'd all come here and they'd rent rooms there or had their own cottages built or occupy cottages that had been constructed. So we had all the members of the Marmaduke family. That was General Mar Confederate General Marmaduke who became the governor of Missouri and his brothers. That lasted until the spa resort function of the area 
kind of shifted and many started going to Excelsior Springs. So they converted the hotel and grounds into the Marmaduke Military Academy, named for General and Governor Marmaduke. He died in 80, in the 1880s. Uh, so in 91, the Marmaduke Military Academy opens and it burned in 1896. So that was the end of that. Most of the students or the cadets went to Mar Wentworth, went to Wentworth Military Academy or to University of Missouri. And they really started the football team at University of Missouri, the cadets did. And we had one composer, he taught music here at Wentworth, Marmaduke, was Edelman Stark. And his father was the owner of Stark Music Company in Sedalia that published Scott Joplin's Maple Leaf Rag and made a fortune from that. So then Edelman Stark was a big composer and he left here and went to Wentworth when the academy burned and he headed their music program, or started their music program at Wentworth and continued to publish music for years, ragtime music. It just pretty much died when Wentworth burned. But prior to that, that was in 1896, prior to that we'd have national or state conventions, the Bar Association, Missouri Bar Association, Kansas City Bar Association, Missouri Teachers Association conventions were all held in Sweet Springs at that hotel and convention hall. And we had Chautauqua come in with city symphonies from across the country would come and perform. We had Eugene Field, the children's poet. He lived on the spring grounds. Uh, we had Bernard McFadden. He was the father of American physical culture and the father of the American pulp novel. He lived there, he taught physical culture at the academy. So he was here until the 90s. And uh, we had the publisher of the Kansas City paper, the publisher, publisher and owner of the Kansas City paper, publisher of the St. Louis paper. They both lived here. We had Governor Crittenden and his son was a mayor of Kansas, well, let's see. Governor Crittenden, we had Lonvesk Stevens, he was a governor, he lived here. We had Governor Marmaduke. We still have two of the Marmaduke cottages on the spring grounds. They're still surviving. And we had John Campbell from Kansas City and his wife Charlotte. They built the Campbell Cottage and it's still there. And he was a founder of Kansas City and their family had been involved in the discovery of the diamond mines in South Africa. So they had a big social following of their own. All of their friends would come to Sweet Springs or Brownsville and Sweet Springs. And that's something that's confused people over the years because I hear from people doing genealogical research and historical research and they say, well, my family's from Brownsville, but I'm not finding it on the map. And I say, well, it's Sweet Springs. It's been Sweet Springs since 1887. So. Uh, we have a lot of people come to the museum from across the country just trying to trace the roots of their genealogical research. And it's easy, and when they come in, if I have a couple of days notice, I can bring in a bunch of their cousins that they've never met <laughs> so they can all sit together That's and great. compare photographs and records and uh -huh. talk about people back in the past and their families that neither of them knew, but when they all lived here. I think it's so fascinating because Sweet Springs was like, you know, you talk about Excelsior Springs, then you, we think down, you know, the more popular things, you know, nowadays being like Eureka Springs, Arkansas, Hot Springs, Arkansas, all of these resort towns that popped up around natural springs. And that was such a um, popular destination in late 19th, early 20th century. So um, you mentioned that Excelsior Springs became more popular and people who might have gone to Sweet Springs eventually started going to Excelsior Springs. Um, in hot springs, right. What was it that made people go elsewhere? Why didn't they stay in, why didn't they decide to go to Sweet Springs anymore? What, what kind of ended that resort culture or resort um, destination here in Sweet Springs? It was really the fire in 1896 and it burned down the hotel that had become the military academy. But in the off season, it was still operating as a hotel for the resort. But when it burned in 96, and the country had already gone through another depression, the 1993 depression, and there wasn't any money to rebuild it, and they found out some of the money was missing from St. Louis investors that uh, they just couldn't rebuild. Mm -hmm. And eventually that property, or half of the property, 
became the park mm -hmm. that the city has or town has now. Mm -hmm. It's a nice, nice setting. Mm -hmm. So just economically, they couldn't recover. They just couldn't mm -hmm. recover. It was a bad time for the country, and mm -hmm. went any way possible. Franny, talk a little bit about your family's history with the park. So when, when Sam mentions the park, he's talking about this area of town. It's now a park, but had a lot of these, these historic structures. It had the, the Marmaduke Academy, which once was the hotel. It had a lot of these resort cottages. So um, Franny, you've got personal history with that area. So talk a bit about that. Well, my mom and dad, when they first started taking care of the park, I think it was back probably back in the 40s. Uh, I remember I was probably somewhere maybe seven, ten years old. They both worked at the shoe factory like most of the people did here. Uh, and they were approached to, if they'd be interested in mowing the park for kind of for a rent. And they that's what they did for years. I don't know exactly when uh, my mom passed away, but it was several years. They mowed it for at least 20 some years. and and. Uh, just that's how how we got started. Uh, they ended up really, made, you know, the gusher down there. That used to be our old swimming hole, mm -hmm. and that the gusher. Can yeah. you explain the gusher for the us? The gusher is the soft water that they found when they were drilling for oil. They hit this artesian well, I guess what they say, and uh, they it's, it shot way out of the ground. I don't know how remember how deep, but <laughs> they were pretty surprised, like weren't they? Yeah, they <laughs> yeah, but not only that though, but Imagine these guys were expecting a lot of money mm -hmm. for oil, and then they and get they this got water. water. You know? <laughs> well, they just didn't drill deep enough. Uh -huh. So, but once they hit that water, it yeah. stopped things. But you know, it's it was nice. That used to be, like I said, our old swimming hole. I've I've swam in it and uh, and uh, did it for years, and just uh, uh, that. And my mom and dad too would, since they were take kind of like take caretakers out of the park. In the summertime, the uh, rec, uh, rec board and park board, well, back then we didn't have a rec board, it was a park board. Uh, they'd have uh, youth functions down at the park, you know, in the summer for the kids, so they'd have something to do, and they would take care of the equipment, the balls, the basketballs, and, and all that stuff. And then in, in the evening, you would walk all over the park and pick up basketballs and face. <laughs> <laughs> they never did bring it back to where, where they got it, but uh, but they enjoyed it. They, and they liked to meet people. And they also ran a uh, concession stand when they had ball games. And then the money they took in from that, they would give to the uh, teams, so they have some money. And and then they shut the shoe factory down, and it pretty well killed the town, really. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a good old town. It's 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 good. So you, um, I want to get to the shoe factory in a second, but um, can you talk a little bit more, Franny, about being a kid, growing up in that park, and uh, oh, especially I don't by that you. about that spring. <laughs> I can't tell you everything we did, <laughs> <laughs> but I had a buddy of mine. He lived across the street there. His name was Bill Jenkins, and he lives in Chattanooga, Tennessee now. We knew every inch of that park because we were all over it. The spring back there, we used to, it kind of had uh, water, but it kind of had a sweet taste to it. And I know my mom would send me down to get a jug of this water, and she'd always make lemonade mm -hmm. with it because it made the best lemonade there was. Mm -hmm. And for a while, when I ran for city council oh, several years ago and, and got it, uh, one of my projects was to try to find the spring. And I got a hold of Larry Zimmersheet, which is donated. He's got a, a track hole and stuff, and then he helped me dig down there. But we never did find the spring, but we, we got down deep enough where the rock that we found was kind of a wet. So, but then we got a hold of the... Uh, uh, Wait a minute. No, Jeff City down there, the government uh, in charge of water and stuff. Anyway, they told us that the spring was still active, mm -hmm. that the spring has come out where there's the least resistance. But the only thing is that it might be coming down the creek or up the creek or someplace else. Mm -hmm. But 
I've been talking to some guys here in town, buddy of mine, and he's got a well that he drilled, and he told me that back in the early days when Sweet Springs had a drought, I don't know if, you, if that's right or not, and I guess they had a severe drought. The town lived off of this well, the whole town did, because it supplied them with water, where nothing else, everything else, I guess, dried up. So we finally found, I know where the vein is, but the part is I'm afraid to tell people about it because I'm afraid to, you know, trespass there. And, but he, he swears that, like I said, they, they survived on it. About 20 years ago, there were two well-meaning gentlemen here in town that had some dynamite and thought they'd open well, up that spring. They're the ones that caused the problem. <laughs> and they blasted that and caused the fault line and it cut off our spring. Well, then you were going to get the spring back open. We brought some boys, some men from Whiteman Air Base and they came and dug and worked that area and they reached mud and they said, at this point you're going to have to hand dig it, but you'll find the spring. And said. we just stopped working. Yeah. We found the mud, but we just have to, probably have to take a backhoe in there again and yeah. then dig by yeah. hand but we could get that spring back open. Somewhere in the embankment, there's a large stone with it carved, Sweet Spring. Oh, I never did find that. And really? the no. man that knew where it was was gonna leave instructions upon his death and his family never found the instructions. Oh. So uh, we'll have to probe well, yeah. around through that embankment to find that. The spring would be pretty deep right now because over the period of time, the black water gets up and it fills in. They built the huge pagoda structure above it that had a marble basin, black and white marble, and they had attendants that would drop like they drop trays of glasses in, in the water and pull it up and hand it to people around the pagoda, around the railing to drink the water. And they had uniforms, the boys did, that dropped the glasses into the water. And there were stairways leading, but it was a beautiful structure. And that's been gone, I don't even know what year that came down. There, right adjacent to that was the bottling works, and they would bottle this water and send it all over the country. And it shipped out by bottles and by jugs, and the large jugs were, they went coast to coast. So we don't find any of those around here, but we hear people finding them in Indiana and Illinois and Oregon, that, well, from 140 years ago. What a great, st I mean, this is the first time I've heard of this portion of it, especially like the, the stone and why we need to take advantage of that and get some of these young kids well, start digging. Like, well, we can rally can the troops, let's do yeah. it. And I think they enjoy it. The gusher, when, my, I, I, when I retired from the highway department, I started a contract mowing for business. And I had bid on the park, so I got the... Uh, job of Moana City Park and when we were down there the first year I noticed this old boy come in and he God he had about 20 gallon jugs of stuff mm -hmm. and he come in and he filled every one of them up with gusher water the sulfur water right. so I went over and talked to him because it's got the horrible smell and stuff it don't it's oh it's not very good but I asked him I said man what are you doing with all that way he said I'm taking it back to California so we noticed, didn't ask that, that, that twice a year he would come in, in the spring and in the fall, and he'd get maybe 20 or 30 jugs of that gush of water, and he'd take it back to California. And that's the state of California, yeah. but uh, uh, we would notice there too that the hell that people would come in from all over, different states. They would come off the highway. That one guy we talked to, he had a bunch of kids, and he said, my kids got rowdy, and he says, I needed some place to turn them loose, so, so he brought them down to the park. And, and that, you know, it just, I don't know, just for some reason, it was a drawing card for, for strangers, you know. Yeah. Well, the doctors around here, if a child would get poison ivy, poison oak, yeah. poison shimak, the doctors say just take the child down to the gusher and strip them down and wash them off with the gusher water, and that'll cure it. And it did. Within two days, it was all gone. So, so the, the town should have bottled that. Well, FDA probably wouldn't prove anything like that. But, <laughs> but the, when I was mowing too, there was a, a gentleman here in town. Uh, I called him my supervisor when I contracted the uh, park, but it was, his name was Morse Cook. And he would come down twice a day 
and take a drink of that stuff. And I don't see how he did it. But he told me, he said, this is the best thing you can do for you. He's the one that knew where the stone was in the embankment, too. Oh, really? Yeah, that was a cookie. But no, I never did find the stone, but I'm still, I'm still going to try. I'm going to get a hold of some people. So what would the goal be if you guys were able to um, find, the, I mean, if you technically know where the spring is, but if you were actually to uncover it, what would you guys do? Knowing that you had it uncovered Announce again. discovery. <laughs> well, that, and I would try to try to get the city and stuff, maybe get some funds and see if we can't open it back up and, you know, revamp it where people can come in and, and get it. You know? Reconstruct a pagoda similar to the one that we had. Yeah. They got, we got a pagoda down there now, that old one. Yeah, but it's going like to a redo, fraction well, of the size of what we had. Oh, but they're going to redo it. It's... Mm -hmm. Squirrels have been chewing on it. That'd be so. good. It had a stone foundation, had a marble basin where they just dipped those trays of glasses in the water. But you mentioned California. There was a, a Sweet Springs club in California oh. for former residents, and there were like 30 or 50 families that would get together every summer and have a reunion. Well, I've got a buddy that That's is. probably where a lot of those jugs of water went well, to I wonder California. If I wonder if that's maybe California Oregon Trail, you know, families that are descended from families that moved out west. It yeah. could be. I think this is kind of a, a good transition to this, um, kind of the then and now. So, you know, Franny, you mentioned the International Shoe Company, your parents were employed by them, right? right. Um, and that was a major employer. So you had this period in the late 19th century of this resort this major tourist attraction of Sweet Springs, a little bit of a period of decline, and then the shoe factory comes in and becomes a major employer in town. And, and I, I was reading articles that said that the shoe factory saved the town back then. Um, but then, of course, that shut down in the 80s, in the 1980s. Um, and then I know that you had a hospital that, that closed not too, too long after that. Um, so two major, not just employers, but, but resources... Um, entities for the town that closed. Um, how did that affect the town? I mean, there's obvious ways that affects the town, but I think some people moved out of it. Uh, I'm sure they did. Uh, between when the shoe factory closed and the hospital closed, we got a, had another company come in with Rival. They made crock pots, mm -hmm. and but then they went out of business because they they just quit. Were we the only town that made those for Rival? No, there's couple of small towns around like Sedalia and I think well those went all over the world yeah. they did oh they shipped them everywhere right. pretty sure my mom still has a rival yeah. crock pot yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway they build them but then they they moved out and I think they moved it overseas mm -hmm. and then we lost them and so when did we lose our dealerships because we oh, had what three, car dealers yeah Ford, three, Ford that's Ford pretty much when things shut down when the last car dealership yeah. left Ford Chevrolet Chrysler we had quite a few. So did that all happen in between? I mean, what 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 time period are we looking at? Shoe factory, hospital, dealerships? Well, job lost from the shoe factory. What year did that close, the shoe factory? I think it was the it was 80s. Huh? The shoe factory? I thought it was the 80s. Was the 80s? Well, it, I can't remember what year. 83, maybe? I worked there a little bit when I got out of, graduated out of high school, and I graduated in 61. And it closed a few years after that, so it probably maybe 80s or so. That might be pretty close. I really don't know the exact date, but but it was a main source of income for the people here. I mean, it was right now. I have said it many a times, boy, well, I wish the shoe factory was back. What I really enjoyed about this conversation is that Sam and Franny are able to give so much history and perspective as people who remember a different time in Sweet Springs and have seen a lot of the change, both the good and the bad. But then there's Tara, who's part of this next generation trying to revitalize the town and is learning from these two and hearing a lot about this town's story from those who experienced it firsthand. The combination creates a seemingly unstoppable force that believes in the town's potential and is determined to see their hopes and dreams for this community come alive. What happens to a small town when, you know, because I don't think we're necessarily saying that this town was huge and booming and then it became small. It's always been a small town, but you had opportunity here. There were car dealerships. There was a, a, a hospital. There was a, a major company. These are 
huge employers for a town. They bring in, you know, tax dollars, they bring in jobs, um, you know, and we all know that having money, having jobs, having resources improves someone's quality of life. Um, so what happens to a small town when all of that happens in a matter of a couple decades? You become stagnant. I mean, it's just, I think I didn't experience, I was obviously young then, um, but that changes people's attitudes and the way they were looking at their community as now we've failed, you know? So you become stagnant, people leave, you just kind of do your deal, you go to work somewhere else, you come home, um, you invest time into your family, you kind of absorb that, and then you just kind of forget about the extras, you know, taking care of things and the extra buildings, the beautiful buildings that we have down here. Um, and I think you just kind of, life continues to happen and you kind of forget and, um, that's where we're starting to see the things change around here as far as the attitudes and how we as a community are ready to move forward from all of that. Um, there's some scars on our backs and some battle wounds and all that good stuff, but I, I mean, we're ready. We are ready. I think too that a lot of it, the, the haves, when the, I call them mom and pop stores, the small places, and I think you've got to have them to survive. We had these major stores that come in and, and they run the mom and pop stores out of business, but every one of them places that you've seen downtown there had a business in it. They had clothing, uh, we had uh, Sears, stuff, you know, just stuff that people, basic stuff that people needed to survive. Then we had grocery stores, but we lost when they started closing, then they, they you know, they couldn't make it, so they started closing down and before you know it, you just about become dead. But before we had the shoe factory, we had other manufacturing here. We had the Kate and Buggy factory, and some of their buggies are, or wagons are still in operation in South America. Milling, um, the town started off with a mill, Pennington's Mill. But in the 1870s, the Brownsville Milling Company built a huge structure by the railroad tracks because we were the first town in the county to have the railroad. It came in 1869 and 70. We were the first town in the county with a railroad and a depot. And right by the depot was the Brownsville Milling Company, which became Sweet Springs Milling Company. It was called the World's Model Mill. And they sold what was called Big S Flour. It was trademarked by that mill. And that was shipped internationally. Mm -hmm. Out on the railroad track here, coast to coast, and then it shipped overseas. And. Uh, we're really a farming community, too, because so many of the older farmers, once they retired, they moved into town. And you can find a lot of families here now that still have some members of their family farming in, around in this area. As Tara and other townspeople put their blood, sweat, and tears into revitalization, I find it really important to mention that Sweet Springs has done an exemplary job at utilizing what they have. The park, once home to these resort cottages, the hotel, the military academy, and many other historic structures that no longer stand, is now a place for the community to spend time together and for them to learn about their history. The town's coffee shop, aptly named Old School, resides in the Old School building. And the Restoration Foundation is utilizing the beautiful historic buildings in their downtown to turn into new business opportunities and community gathering spaces. During our time here, we heard a lot about how, back in the day, you couldn't get a parking spot downtown on the weekend. And that's what they want to bring back. They fear the younger generations have only known this stagnant Sweet Springs, and they want to bring the town back to a place that people can say they're proud to be from. Something Tara mentioned was that at one point, she looked around and realized that a lot of the people leading these revitalization and preservation efforts were getting on in age, and she wanted to get involved to help pass it on to the next generation and ensure the efforts continue, and also help create a place where they feel they can build a home, a career, or a family. So we, we started to talk a little bit about you know that period of decline and the loss of the businesses, the loss of the jobs, but... At some point there was a shift and because as we were walking around yesterday, 
you know, there's so many restoration projects going on. There are so many examples of people seeing the potential of Sweet Springs and wanting to invest in not just a business, but putting it in a historic structure, putting it in a place of Sweet Springs that has a story, that has a connection to this town and its history. So obviously that doesn't happen overnight. <laughs> um, but what was the, the shift, the, the catalyst to, you know, we're not going to sit here and just survive. We want to thrive and, and we're, you know, this is what we're going to do to thrive. Um, what changed? You know, I look back at the time when we were stagnant and our buildings were falling down and, you know, we were, we were losing our sense of history and our, our physical history that you could see and we could share with the world. You know, I wish I could get Sam's brain put in someone else's so we can continue on this legacy of everything that he knows, you know. Um, now he can only reference, for the most part, a piece of grass, a piece of land, you know. Yeah. And um, so I think that was kind of part of our downfall as, as well. And, you know, I think as I grow older and I have two kids, one that just graduated high school and one's turning 16, that I want this to be a thriving community for them. And I, you always want better for your kids, right? Better than what you had. And I loved growing up here. It was a small community that graduated with 38 people in my class, loved every one of them. I mean, it was just one of those great, great times growing up, but I wanted to extend that with my, with my kids. And I've kind of seen that all they want to do is go to college and not come home. And we need to be able to, we need to do better and we need to provide. We need to explain to the kids that we need doctors and we need lawyers and we need accountants and we need fast food restaurants. And we need, we need all of that here. But in order to do that, they have to be willing to come back, but we have to show the importance of what the value is of living in a small town. Let's face it, we're all here because of our families. I mean, my um, very close on my mom's side and my dad's side, you know, everyone grew up here in Sweet Springs. Um, my mom worked at Rival for years, you know, and that was a lot of hard work. That was, it was a lot, but, you know, I, I think at some point you just have to kind of put your big girl panties on and say, we're going to do this, right? And, but the turnaround happened, I know, about probably five years ago, four years ago. Um, we had a gentleman here in town, Bill Cook, who um, continued to own the grocery store here in Sweet Springs, but he left for a while and moved to Chillicothe. And, you know, it was kind of the time when everybody was moving and, you know, leaving Sweet Springs. And, but he decided to come back, which I thought was interesting. And he wanted to, quote unquote, retire, you know, even though he's already reti been retired, you know. But this, he wanted to come back here. So why did Bill want to come back here? I'm thinking, you know, he, he's wanting to do something and start something. And then he does. He starts this restoration, the Sweet Springs Restoration Foundation. My husband was involved and I just kind of dabbled in it a little bit. And they were together getting um, their group, their board, and they were kind of cleaning out some buildings and doing all that. And it's about a year and a half later, I kind of started getting really involved and really wanting to see that flourish because they were trying so hard, but they just needed more hands, you know? And that's when a f I got a few friends together and they got their husbands and we all said, we're gonna do this, you know? Like we wanna, we wanna see this change. So we came up with a cultivating community and had 150 people downtown. It was a great day. Um, Dawson Hollow ended up uh, having a concert for us, which was our theme for our HGTV project um, video that we did. But I, that's where we started seeing, I need to join in. I, I as a middle-aged woman, <laughs> I need to take a hold of this project as well and be a part of it. Um, so then it just kind of flourished from there, really. Um, we then started raising money and um, 
you could see that the community really, really wanted that. And when we did our HGTV video, I think that was the first turnaround. I felt like the town is really, we're really, really ready. We put it out there, hey, we want people to come downtown and show them that we're ready to do this. And it was amazing. There were people that hadn't seen each other in years that were having conversations, young and old. And, and I think that's where we're at now is we've got to merge these conversations of history and these new ideas and how can we manage to make this a great community. It's always been a great little town. And it's, it's always had great people in it. But we need to extend and share this love and say, like, come check this out. We really have something here. You know, you want to spend a weekend here. You may not want to live here. It may not be your cup of tea all the time, but um, there's definitely something for everyone at some point. Well, that COVID crisis really put a damper on things too. Right. Because we had an annual festival here in town. People came in from all over the country, old families that lived here and relatives. And it was a week-long event. And we haven't had that for now. Three or four years. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so once we get that back, that's going to help a lot too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's and it, spread the info, spread the information about projects we're working on, mm -hmm. and that'll carry coast to coast. And I think that's really important too. I think people want to hear that small towns aren't just stuck in time. Um, that they are that there are active efforts to revitalize to progress to um, prepare for the next generation. Tara, I really like what you've said about, you know, the younger generation needs to know that the older generations are trying to make it so that they have a place here. Um, so when you talk about preparing Sweet Springs and preparing your younger generation to want to come back. And by come back, I mean like if they were to go away to school, to the military, you know, or even just to get some experience somewhere else to come back and bring that here. What does Sweet Springs need to do to prepare for that? I think right now is kind of in the direction of what we are doing. We need more housing. There is a housing project that we have going on, two housing projects actually. Um, and I think we need to spread the word that uh, it's a good place to come back to. You know, it's a, it's a great place to raise a family. There's the sense of family is here, you know, amongst all of us. May not all get along every time, but it's what family does, right, you know? Right. I mean, you have your little, your little spats, but no, I, I think that is the direction. What we're doing is what we should be doing in order to try to draw those people back home. And maybe again, it's not something that they want to um, stay here, but to come back here and see old family and friends as the festival can do, you know, as, as you have those events, encouraging people to come with the block party that we've started for the Restoration Foundation. We call it a community reunion because that's exactly what we want. We want people that's to come in right. and yes, and we want that community reunion feeling. And um, I think there for a time, there were probably people that maybe were a little embarrassed to be from Sweet Springs. I, I, you know, I think they didn't really talk about it. It was just, it was probably a stagnant community at that point. And uh, where are you from? I'm from a little town in, in Missouri, you know, mm -hmm. but we want them to be proud to say, I'm from this little town in, in Missouri, you know, it's dead center between Kansas City and Columbia. It's a great place to, to go to school, you know, tons of, tons of friends and family there. But um, yeah, we go back once a year just to go back and see everybody. You know, I, I, think that's what, I think that's what I would love to see here, you know. We need to get young people in the historical society. That's where we're suffering. It's an age problem. Well, right. I mean, and it's that's where we're at as far as, you know, with the block party, we're bringing in that younger generation because I'm going, I don't, I, I, 
I, this is a this is a lot on me, you know. And you guys are young, and you guys like to do this. Like we're sixty and, to ninety years old yeah. in the historical society, right. and we don't have any young members. No, unless we start giving memberships to valedictorians and solitarians and yeah. anybody interested to get them. Or like a young friends group. I mean, that's a great way to start. Is just mm -hmm. you know, what kinds of um, special events can you host or ho you know advertise that? is geared towards young people. Because I think it's really hard to get young people interested in, in quote unquote, just history. You know, you, you have to figure out how to reach them from their perspective and why a 16 year old, an 18 year old, a 20 year old should care about history. You know, it's almost, you, have to, you have to put it from their perspective. What would they relate to? Um, you know, I think a, a, a young friends organization or, or division of it would be a great place to start. But I'm interested too, you know, Tara, you've got, you know, you just said you've got a kid that's graduate, just graduated high school and then one that's in high school and um, Sam and Franny, I don't know if you've got grandkids, nieces, nephews, but what do you hear from them? Um, what do you guys hear from this, you know, I guess Gen Z, maybe even younger than Gen Z, I'm not even sure at this point. <laughs> what do you guys hear from the younger generation that you interact with on a regular, maybe daily basis about being in Sweet Springs? You know, I think they have, my kids have their highs and lows of being in a small community. Uh, my son's gonna go to school at UCM, which is about 45 minutes away from here at, at Warrensburg. I'm excited for him to make that transition. He needs to do that. But in the back of his mind, every once in a while he'll say, but I, I'll be ready to come home. And that makes my heart happy. You know, I definitely want that, but I never want them to feel pressured that they have to come back here because mom is crazy and this has on this crazy initiative to make, put Sweet Springs on the map, you know? And, um, but I want them to be passionate about something. And so I hope that that's what we can instill in them is to show that I want them here. Um, I think they're too young now to probably tell me exactly what is going to happen and what, um, but I think we're starting to see and educate. For example, we had the FFA group um, do a demonstration and went to state, um, and it was the Ag Issues group. They went all around here in the in the. Um, in Sweet Springs and presented Marshall, I guess all around Saline County. Rural healthcare crisis. Yes, it was over the rural healthcare crisis. And I, we had that opportunity to follow up with them of why it's important. You know, you've brought out some really good topics here. So how can you, as an 18 year old, make this better? What can you do in your future? You know, and you could kind of see it clicking in their head. I think that's where we, as the older group generation, we're not good about communicating. Do you know what we have down there at the historical, at the museum? I mean, they have no idea. They have no idea. I, and I think if they could see some of that, they would be like, oh, that is kind of interesting, you know? Maybe in the back of their mind, it's not going to be anything right now, but maybe in five years after they come back from school or trade school or whatever they decide to do or decide to live here. That's a really cool thing. I mean, we have, that is one thing that we have here in Sweet Springs. It's amazing. It's, we have so much, we have too much stuff in that small building. We really would love to get them moved over into like the, uh, the old McCage side building. It would be wonderful. You could spread it out and see it. And um, there's so much comes in all the time. It's and it it's comes in from everywhere. And, and we aren't ro we, well we do rotate things from time to time, but there's so much coming in. The young people aren't. They just don't know that people here made something of themselves in, on an international scale because they're just not educated about it here while they're here. You know, and I think that's where we as adults don't encourage the kids to say, you know, just because you're from a small town doesn't mean you can't be somebody or something, you know? 
take pride in what you do, where you live and what you do and make every day better than it was yesterday. I mean, let's face it, the last two and a half years with COVID has changed all of us. Um, it is it has rocked everyone's world and we're trying to get back, but we'll never be the same community that we were or the same people that we were prior to COVID. So I think that's another way that we can restore as a small community say, hey, we're out here. We survived this in our small community. We stayed together. I feel like lifestyles, we're going back to the easier days of you just need your necessities. We don't we don't need all of this other extra in our lives and going and doing. That is the good thing that came out of COVID. You know, you were able to slow down a little bit and kind of regroup as a family. It was amazing. You know, the time that you got to spend with within your home. Um, now, after a while, it was enough, right? I mean, I think we all kind of felt like, okay, this is how I'm done with this. But um, I, I think it, we were able to survive. We had the grocery store here. And I think that's where maybe some of the other people in larger communities are thinking, maybe it's not so bad. No, maybe maybe it's not the small town living isn't so bad. I can I can work in the city and I could come home um, to this nice little community with a great school district, and I just foresee that's kind of how we we're changing as a society post COVID, and it's it's interesting to kind of go back to simplicity of things. You know, being here, we can provide everything in our community. It's amazing what you can get here if you just look. Mm -hmm. Our local lumber yard yesterday when we were walking around, right? I mean, they're, whatever you need, they probably have it. And if they don't, they can get it in two days, mm -hmm. maybe a week. But you know what? It's worth waiting that week if we need to um, because we're shopping here. Mm -hmm. But our grocery store, our Dollar General, I mean, it's, it's amazing if you sit back and think of how much money you can spend here in Sweet Springs, you can get almost anything and everything. Now we have a boutique, you know, ladies can get their clothes. Now, gentlemen, I can't say, oh, no, we've got car Carhartt. Yes. That's right. I was yes. going to say. So, and, and this is so great, too, because um, something that I've really enjoyed about Small Town Showcase is that, you know, what I have seen is really – the, lo the, the shopping local movement, you know, is important everywhere. It's, it's important in big cities just as much as it's important in a small town. But I think in a small town, something that people need to understand about, you know, if you need to go buy a gift, if you need to shop, um, you have fewer options in your town, but your dollar goes so much farther than if you even just drive another 45 minutes into, like, the KC metro area. You know, you could go spend, you know, your dollar there, and that's great. You're supporting that community, but your dollar is going to support your neighbor here. You know, your your money spent at a shop here is helping that shop owner, you know, with their family and their their business and their livelihood. So, you know, it's just it gets you thinking more critically about, well, what do I want my dollar to support? Um, obviously there's always reasons for needing to go someplace a little bit bigger, you know, when you really do need those extra things. Sure. Everyone understands that. But I'd like to see us have a farmer's market, like on I-70. Oh, that'd be great. Because there'd be so many people from south, all around here mm -hmm. yeah. that could come in there and sell produce and vegetables. Um, so kind of with that said, we've talked a lot about, you know, preparing your town and wanting your town to be the best it can be for, for the next generation and kind of this, this shift in attitude towards, you know, this is where we live and we, we want it to be the best it can be. Um, thinking about public perception of small towns, you know, you're on I-70 between, you know, it's the, the I-70 corridor between St. Louis and Kansas City. It stretches all the way to Colorado, if not farther you get people from all over that stop here. You know, you, you said you're a great place to stop and get gas. You've got a K, you brand new Casey's, you've got a break time. Um, people traveling a little bit further into town, you've got a great coffee shop. So you're lucky in that you get that I-70 traffic. But, you know, what, 
what kinds of things do you hear about, you know, the outsider's perspective of a small town and, and how do you kind of counteract that? You know, what would you say to people who have, you know, that negative perception of a small town? <laughs> I came back here after 35 years being away from Dallas. Mm -hmm. I don't even know that I would probably want to acknowledge the naysayers. I think at this point, and that's the other thing I think that, you know, you've seen in small communities where there's, there may be a rift between something and someone and, well, I'm not going to go to that business anymore. I'm not going to do this. And we're not really like that anymore. It's kind of like, all right, we're going to go. We don't, that, that was in the past. We're going to move on. Right. Oh, and, and no, I, and I think, that's part of our movement as well is being positive about what we do have here um uh, to a naysayer of a small town that's a great question i i think i would probably challenge them to come here and just hang out for just a little bit we've got amazing things and amazing people but i think until you're here um and see it and witness all this craziness that we have. We have the phenomenal cheese store. We've got the racetrack. There's a lot of entertainment around here. Um, of course, back in the day, they'll tell you about the entertainment. You know, it's what we're trying to restore is this 40,000 square foot used to be retail slash entertainment colonnade buildings. You know, that's what we want. We want to be able to entertain. And I think I would probably challenge them to just come hang out for a little bit, you know, or just ignore it. Cause I just, I don't have time for that. That's the other thing I've developed since COVID. I'm like, ah, whatever. You can be upset and move on. I'll forget the next day why I was even upset. So <laughs> yeah, and the internet helped everybody survive COVID. Yes, it That's did. That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think too, you're going to, one of these days, you're going to see all the little stores downtown once Bill and them gets done with their project, you're going to see places, businesses back in there. And all it takes is one or two. And before you know it, you're going to have people wanting to join. Right. It just takes that one or two people. And, and it's not. Um, and it's going to happen. It's, it is going to happen. It's going to, and it's it's like going to happen school. sooner You can't find a place later. that nice in the city. I'm yeah. sorry. It's like old school. The coffee shop. Right. right. You, you can't find a place that good right. in the city. Well, it's just like you were some. I think you were talking about the gift and had to go to big cities. Well, we that's something we used to do back in the old days. If you wanted to buy some little trinket or whatever it was, you could go down at Widgets. They had they had right. it, or you know we, they had it here. Right. They they were a small store, but they still had substitute what you and what you wanted, and you know so that's the good thing about it. And I say I think we're going to see that again. I might not, but no, I think we, it I will think be. You will, Franny. It's we're a lot closer than I think. Well, I think you. What, I think it's I mean, around the corner. We're pretty it's just right around the corner. You know, we met with a business yesterday that is super excited about coming here to our small community. And um, I, I, I said, it's gonna take one person to get this all started and I want it to be you, so let's do this. Like, let's figure out how we can get you here. I also see us as not, you know, all of this downtown, it's not necessarily a Monday through Sunday, open every day of the week. It's gonna be for entertainment purposes. It's gonna be for the weekends. It's gonna be for special events. You know, that type of, of business, you know, or a restaurant, a brewery. Um, had a lot of talk about a cigar bar. And you know, there's just, there's a lot of coolness here that we can hopefully take advantage of the biggest thing that we're missing here is that financial bridge. Um, investors, grants, all of that stuff. You know, we've kind of, as far as the community v development block grants and stuff like that, we're, some of those we're not even eligible for because our income is too high. That's a problem, you know? And so we're right in that we need to find a, loophole or we need something that our income is is decent around here because you are able to travel to the city and get a decent paying job or you know i'm very very thankful i can work here in in saline county yeah, we're an and, hour away from kansas city yeah i mean and an hour away from university of missouri so you know we're not necessarily a low income but we're not we're just we're falling right in those cracks 
and we just need that financial bridge. I don't know when and I don't know where, but um, I think the right person needs to hear our story. And I feel like that's what you guys are able to help us do. Um, we can we can meet people and have met so many people and have toured this <laughs> downtown area. Um, I can't tell you how many wonderful people that we've given the tour to and, and they're trying to help us bridge these gaps. We just need to get the story out to the right person. Thank you again to Sam, Franny, and Tara for the conversation and for their dedication to Sweet Springs. Small Town Showcase is a production of Missouri Humanities. Special thanks to our production manager, Michael Saldivar, and thank you to our members and supporters for making this initiative possible. To learn more about us, visit mohumanities.org or follow us on social media at mohumanities. I'm Caitlin Yeager. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back again soon with more of the Show Me State.